Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. I live in Southern California, Los Angeles. This is Baja Norte. If you do not speak Spanish in Los Angeles, you're missing out on a whole lot. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, LeVar Burton Reed's listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash LeVar. That's rosettastone.com slash L-E-V-A-R. Wayfair's biggest sale of the year is here. It's Wayday. Right now, you can score up to 80% off at Wayfair. Save on sofas and cookware, dining sets and rugs and beds, wall art, bar cards, floor lamps, sailing fans, home decor, all things outdoor, and way more. All up to 80% off right now. Plus, everything ships free. And flash deals are launching all Wayday long. Don't miss Wayfair's biggest sale of the year. Shop Wayday right now for May 6th at Wayfair.com. Style every home. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them, and I hope you will too. Y'all, I've got a really powerful story to share with you today by the speculative fiction writer Karen Osborne. Now, Karen is the author of Architects of Memory and Engines of Oblivion, both from Tor Books. And she's also a graduate of Viable Paradise and the Clarion Writers Workshop. This story was originally published at Escape Pod. The title of the story comes from the lyrics of an old wailing song called The Wings of a Ghani. It refers to the bird that we know as an albatross, but to sailors out on the high seas, it was a Ghani or even a Goonie bird. The whaler singing the song is looking mournfully at an albatross flying over, admiring its freedom as he's been out sailing for years, searching for that jackpot of a whale. Karen has taken the whaler's toiling and set it in outer space, really beautifully blending the natural world that's familiar to us and the possibilities and pitfalls of exploring beyond our Earth. The lyrics in part go like this. These trials we bear for nigh on four years till our flying jib points to home we're supposed for our toil to get a bonus on the oil and an equal share of the bone. We go to the agent to settle for our trip, and it's there we have cause to repent, for we've slaved away for years of our life, and we've earned about three pounds ten. Please check out the episode description for a content advisory, if you're so inclined, and... If you're ready, let's take a deep breath. <sighs> and begin. An equal share 
of the Bone by Karen Osborne. To kill a Therida, you need gunboats and suits, laser cutters, and open-mawed cargo bays, brawn, and a stout heart, and God on your side. We, of course, had none of that. I learned in the Merchant Marines to never shoot a Therida with a standard railgun. They'll thrash and ride and put angry holes through your hull. And eating vacuum is nobody's idea of a good trade run. No, a Therida's distributed brain needs a distributed solution. If you don't have a spinal lance capable of wide-range dispersal, move on. Don't even try. Back in the Academy, before Elliot and I signed on with Garuda, we used to inflate massive Plastex balloons with pressure gel and deploy them beside our training vessels, taking turns at the lance control. It wasn't anything like the real thing. Inexperienced spacers often believe that the glimmering purple sac in a Therida's bioluminescent belly is the animal's brain, but that is only because we mammals forget that the universe is a multifarious, violent parade of a hundred thousand ways to be mortal. But we weren't inexperienced. Our captain, Nate, had thousands of hours of piloting time. I was the best gunner this side of the Mercy War. Elliot could make a working engine out of spit and vomit. That's why we believed we could handle a Therida kill. Hubris. That's the word. Even professionals happen on hard times. We were desperate and destitute, coming back from a bad luck, fruitless trip. And Nate's frequent and frantic messages to the creditors back on the station made me wonder if our ship, Garuda, would be ours for long. Garuda ran cold and broken most of the time with recycled air that we could no longer keep clean and rattling parts so close to breakdown that even Elliot was having a rough time. We three were tight, but there was tension made worse by Elliot telling Nate one night at dinner that he hadn't trashed his illegal brain load equipment like he'd promised back in the belt, and Nate responding that there was only room for one of us in the hard drive, if it came to that. Elliot reacted well. Dear Elliot, who smelled like the engine room, whose thin fingers ran as delicate against the ship's broken systems as they did against my skin, in our quarters or in the cargo bay, or sometimes in my gunner's chair after Nate was asleep. The arrangement had gone from casual to serious in the time it took to quit the belt, and we wanted to stay together when we got back to Mercy Station. All of that stress is why we can be forgiven for rushing to the window in a breathless cluster as soon as the Therida hit the sensors, our fingers pressed against the death-like frost of the observation window, 
greed kindled in our chests. We watched the massive being twirling and twinkling against the darkness and started calculating how much space we had left and if we could fill it with plasm. None of us wondered why this Therida was on its own, why it had no pack of babies riding its wake. Elliot and I just saw a future with a ship of our own. Nate saw his Garuda, wings unfurled and shining, the pride of the system once again. If we could take the star, the sack, the plasm, we'd be rich. It seemed logical. Only in the bright aftermath of our mistake, when Nate floated transparent and dead in front of the very same window, tethered for a safety that could never truly come, did I start to understand that greed has a logic of its own. I could see the bare outline of Elliot's bones through his shaking hands, the signature of a spacer that had been around starlit engines and ether radiation for more than ten years. He was always the one to rush in, heedless of the danger. It's a bad quality in a spacer, and a worse quality in a traitor, but you forgive these things when they inhabit a person you love. He would usually be the first one to speak, but this time, I went first. Are we going to kill it? Nate was the captain, so he made the call wide-eyed with wonder. Come on, Eris, he said. Are you kidding? It was like I'd just asked him if water was wet. In a way, we owe our entire economy to the Therida, don't we? To them and to the Ophelians who chased a pack near Europa in their slippery, skinny ships, just as humans first arrived in the neighborhood. We owe it to the early spacers who discovered that the creature's flesh, what we call the plasm, protected against interstellar radiation when slathered inside suits and on skin, even as it made that skin slightly transparent. We owe the inventors who discovered what the osmotic sac could do to recycle food and water on long journeys, who turned the heart stars that sustained the Therida into the starlit engine that gave us the galaxy. Without the Therida, we are denied a future. So, we still hunt the grand beast with our harpoons and our knives, screaming chanties against the airless black tide. Nate had seen the Ophelians hunting the Therida up close on a long patrol, and we had textbooks, so we assumed we were set. I loaded a firing solution into the Garuda's spinal lance while he gave us the plan. I would disable the brain with the lance, making sure the animal was still alive, then make a cut under the creature's dorsal fin to free the plasm at full potency. Nate would suit up and harvest the plasm, and Elliot would open the main engine to take in the new heart star. The profits from the sack would go against Garuda's repair bills and more besides. The star, the sack, the plasm, 
They would fix everything. At first, everything went according to plan. I fired. Bright blue pulses hit the animal and crackled around its broad amoebic body, its incredible bioluminescence flickering twice, then failing forever. I did not know if the Therida was in pain, although its anterior fins shuddered and the liquid skin convulsed in quivering ribbons. I swallowed, then made the cut under the fin, noting the gaping black curve against the exterior lights of our ship with unwelcome, grim pleasure. The Therida kicked and shuddered once more, then went limp and liquid. Plasm leaked from the wound. I tried to feel upbeat. At any rate, we were committed. Nate looked white and wan, but tethered himself to Garuda's repair mesh anyway. I stayed to monitor the situation on the bridge while Elliot worked the last of our extra plasm onto the skin of Nate's arms and legs and chest, loaded him down with a laser cutter and as many containers as he could carry, and sent him out the cargo bay airlock. Elliot watched the sticky, boring work of the slaughter from inside the airlock while I stayed on the bridge. We're going to be rich, Nate said over the comm as he bagged container after container of plasm, sending each back on the tether to Elliot with a quick, careful hand. Elliot wasn't paying as much attention. He was whispering to me on a private channel about the places we could go now that we were going to be able to afford a vacation. Nate bagged and bagged until he reached the osmotic sack. He announced that he was making the initial cut to the sack and went quiet. He did not need to tell me what was wrong. Around me, the ether wave alarms erupted into a screaming orchestra of sound. Plasm is useful, but the osmotic sac and its contents are the most important part of the Therida. Without the osmotic filters protecting and recycling food and water, the Grand Colony ships would have never filled this part of space with human life. And while the sack is important, it's the heart stars that really count. Tiny slices of nibbled stars, full of the energy we know as ether, are swept up by the natural-born Therida in the quiet nebula where they're created and are eaten by others after a packmate's death. These are as dangerous as they are useful and sit at the heart of the starlit engines that propel humans and Ophelians into deep space. One heart could feed a Therida for a hundred years. Two meant that it once had a mate. Three, a child. Four, a pack. Three stars could work miracles for spacers like us. Four meant that we could retire. Five stars contained so much ether radiation that it could hurt a crew. Five would kill, eventually, cancer. Six 
Nobody had ever seen six hearts in a Theratus belly. The alarms howled. I slammed my hand on the comm. We're taking rads, I yelled. Nate, abort. Get back in behind the plasm barrier. Nate's voice crackled. So close. Just one more. Those alarms say that you're up against at least four hearts in there, I said. We need to rethink this. We can still do this, Elliot's voice. I checked the camera. He was still in the cargo bay, going for the extra suit. Let me suit up and get out there. Open the engine maw. My stomach churned as I checked the readings. Four hearts? That's a lot of rats for four hearts. That's a hell of a lot of rats. No, I said. Elliot, stay where you are. I need more information. I'm going out to help. Nate coughed. (coughs) Don't, he said. It's too late. The sentence hit like a load of bricks to my stomach. From Elliot's hitched breath, it had had a similar effect. How many? Elliot asked. Nate was silent for a long, agonizing moment. Don't look, he said. (coughs) Just get out of here. Garuda's plasm barrier won't protect you from this. (coughs) I looked. Hard in my throat, I switched back to the exterior cameras to see Elliot waiting inside the airlock, helmet in hand, ready to go. I saw Nate in his suit clinging to the hardening skin of the dying Therida, his legs kicking fruitless and angry in the vacuum. He stared at the gobs of plasm blinking and sputtering around him and was limed in the bracing, screaming light of a heart star. I checked the radiation levels again. A hell of a lot of hearts. On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Now, let's get back to our story. 
The picture was so bright that I had to close my eyes, even with the filter. Elliot's hand shaded his eyes and he looked away, past the dead thing into the cold stars beyond. I gulped down saliva, imagining the light in Nate's eyes, the radiation slipping past the plasm, curling his veins, cooking his mind. I had last heard that kind of silence at my mother's funeral. How many? I finally whispered. Dozens, Nate said. Thirty, maybe forty. Elliot's voice was anxious disbelief. I thought it was young, packless. Now you're telling me that it's basically older than time? You're rich, Nate said. He sounded dry, shredded. You're rich too, I whispered back. For the next ten seconds, this is... He gulped. This is not how I thought it would turn out. Elliot, I'm leaving Garuda to you. Take care of her. Elliot looked up at the camera, waiting for me to weigh in. I wiped tears from my eyes. This is your ship, not mine, Elliot said. You heard me. Nate's words were the clipped, forceful bullets of a man who knew he had no time. Go! Elliot lingered for a moment, then stumbled back, disappearing. Reel in his tether, I said. There has to be something we can do. Garuda's rad alarms kept screaming, and even as I said it, I knew I was lying. The dying Therida's osmotic sack was reading aether leakage from the corpse like I'd never seen. Forty hearts. Forty hearts. Enough to curdle the plasm inside of Garuda's hull. Enough to power the entire empire. Enough to keep Elliot and I in gold and satin until the end of time. Would it be enough to make up for leaving Nate behind? Even if we gave it all away, would it make up for anything at all? What I was about to do? I slammed the comm. I'm opening the engine maw. Three hearts. That's all we need. Elliot's voice sounded shocked. Damn it, baby, no. I'm not giving up, El. What the hell is happening to me? Nate said. No, Nate, don't do this. Nate! Elliot was in the hallway now, gunning for the engine room. I could see him on internal cameras, shaking and angry and stalking. I wondered how many rads he'd taken. Forty hearts. I wondered if I was dead too. Stay with me, Nate, I repeated. Nate did not respond. I swore at him. I brought up the camera in his suit. Nate had nearly gone transparent. Underneath his disappearing skin, I could see his white eyes, the pus in his sinuses, his white skull, the deteriorating gray whorls of his brain. His body went liquid, 
transparent, purple and gold and bright, searing blue. And the suit began to disintegrate around him. The tears in his eyes shone last, diamond bright. He looked less like a human being than an amoeba trapped in a suit. I had only heard of this transformation happening in stories. I hadn't thought for a second that the stories were based on truth. Through the horror curdling in my throat, I told Nate that Elliot and I loved him. But he was a Therida now, a beast with no heart to guide him. And he was just as dead as the rest of us. And this is the truth of the universe. To live, you must kill. We can be as moral as we want, but the calories have to come from somewhere, and humans can't eat stone. Death feeds life, and life feeds death. The line between greed and necessity is a thin one, even in the all-consuming vacuum even as we spread past Mercy Station to the entire damned galaxy. We don't have to kill the Therida. We could have stayed on our rickety little stations, our dying little world. It might have even been a good life. We don't have to gamble with the blood in our veins and the beat of our hearts, but where would we be without our starlit drives, the sack that keeps us alive? the dreams that they're to give us? Would we be huddled on our own tiny world, dying around the ancient fires that ruined our planet? How far will we go? We like to think of hope as the impetus that caused us to cross oceans, mountain ranges, the space between Earth and Mars and the asteroids and finally galaxies, but... It is greed. It has always been greed. Even when we think we are better than that. Elliot came up to the bridge. His face was paler than mine, as white as water, and he kissed me as if it was the last time. I knew what was happening. We were both dead. I thought of the hearts I'd just been dragging into the engine maw. What if I ate one, consumed it? Would I die human or breathe starlight for a hundred years? His lips felt warm and his body was still human, so I fumbled with the fastenings on his suit. The thrill of the forty stars reached our fingers, began turning our skin transparent squeezed terror and exhaustion into our trembling hearts. I ripped the suit off, and we cried. We would soon be something else ourselves, but for right now, we were human. We're rich, he whispered. We were. Forty hearts. Forty Enough to buy an entire world. Enough to commandeer a thousand Garudas. To drink armies. To race to the end of time itself. Worthless, I whispered back. 
unwilling to stop touching him, even as I changed. I have a plan. Elliot reached up with his bony, flickering hand, pushing back my hair. He was nearly transparent now. I could see the blood in his arteries, his liver, his gray, pumping heart. He traced his hand up my arm, right above the radius, slipping into view. Without his face, Elliot looked less like the man I love and more like an anatomy drawing. A biology textbook. Cells, endothelia, flagelli, food in his stomach and crap in his rectum and all of that soon to end as well. He turned to Garuda's command chair, dragging his liquid hand out of my grasp. You can save me, he whispered through a lipless mouth. I'll eat a heart. I bet I'll transform. You can upload. Go for help. Scientists will have plenty of time. I'll have a hundred years. Two hundred and you will have forty hearts in your belly. No, I whispered. I'm not going to leave you behind. I'm changing. Maybe I can change back. I looked down at my hands. They had started to flicker. I felt a calm sort of fear, a burning sort of pain, a starbright hunger. No. And I'll knock you out and make you do it. It's illegal. They'll kill Garuda's core gestalt and then you'll be out there forever. (laughs) We're this screwed and you're worrying about something being illegal? I started to panic. They'll wipe me from the banks and I won't be able to find you. You can do this, Eris. Elliot's fingers were limed in purple. It sounded like he was drowning. You will find me. I thought of the dying Therida outside. Had it been born that way? Had it been human or Ophelian or some other damned mortal thing? Had it dreamed of being human? Would Elliot, in a few minutes? I could not leave him behind. Where's the rig? I whispered. Even his bones were gone now. He pointed, no longer able to speak. Elliot could have been the one to tell you all of this, but for the fact that he loved me. Call me Garuda or call me Aris. Either one is correct. Garuda is not dead. The ship is me now, every inch of it, from the AI synapses firing in the computer core to the breech-severed skin that aches, brilliant and broken against the endless darkness. I am no gestalt, but I am as immortal as any rusty thing can be. I am illegal, and I am in love, and you will not stand in my way with this ridiculous customs inspection. This is your choice, Mercy Soldier. 
No matter what you do to my new body, I will not forget that I was Aris once. Garuda's gunner, Nate's friend, Elliot's lover, as damned and as human as you. I loved people. I drank coffee and vodka, danced, sang, wished, hoped. Elliot made sure I had my mind, that I could remember where to go when I awoke and took control of my new metal form, that I could track him and find him and defend him until the research bears out a cure for his star-bright affliction. It might take a hundred years. I might have to destroy every Therida hunter out there to make sure Elliot will live. I do not care. If Elliot committed a sin uploading me to Garuda's core, I am glad of it. Just as glad as you will be to let me leave with my secret intact and 39 hearts in my engine. One heart. Will that be enough to make your face turn in the opposite direction when I go? Or will you need... Greed is something I understand now. Are you thinking of putting that heart in a starlit engine and taking to the hunt yourself? I know how seductive that thought can be. It doesn't matter to you that you might end up in hell. You're just thinking about the 40 stars and all the things you could buy when you're done. I already see you scrambling at your comm units, at your sensor rigs, at your spies among the Ophelians. You think you will make better decisions than Nate and Elliot and I. You think you won't ever be desperate. You'll conveniently forget that there is nothing we could have done to save ourselves. You'll think that you will do better. Don't forget a blanket when you go. Forty hearts burn like an apocalypse, but they will never keep you warm. You will need gunboats and suits, laser cutters and open mod cargo bays, brawn and a stout heart, and God on your side. There are lots of reasons that I like this story. Uh, first, I think that that she's very, very clever with the form. I mean, she wastes no time getting right to the action in this story. And the way our narrator brings us through the events and then we discover that She's telling this tale to someone else besides us. <laughs> it, it, it's pretty cool. And then, of course, beginning and ending the story the same way with the same words. It doesn't always work, but it does for me in this case. Of course, there's the obvious parallels to wailing to be drawn. But to me, the 
deeper issue is greed. The greed of the greed of humans has driven some of the worst decisions in human history, and it is also, in my view, the cause of so much suffering. So here's the thing: if if this perpetual state of greed is so intrinsic to who we are as human beings, what measures can we take to fight against that tendency? You know, they say that once you achieve a certain level of of income, of wealth, that 10x that, it doesn't make you any happier, right? And why is there a tendency in us to want to ensure that as much as I have, I'm not satisfied unless there are a whole bunch of others that have less than I do. I mean, that's that kind of thinking is responsible for so many of our isms, right? The struggle for power on this planet has led to racism, sexism, classism, right? But we know that this planet, at least when we're not trying to destroy it, we know that this planet could sustain us. And I wonder if we've passed the point of no return. I, I, I think the experts are saying that perhaps we have. But I have to believe that there is some sort of intervention. There's some sort of method. There's some sort of measures that we might take prove that we are indeed better than that. What can I do on an individual level to stop the madness of greed? I know I've got more stuff than I barely have space for in my life, and truth be told, I really don't need all of this stuff. Is greed born into us? Are we born into greed? Or is it something that we learn along the way? It's stories like this one that remind me of the perilous nature of the journey that we are on and and encourage me to do better, to be better to swim against the tide. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all. Our researcher is Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. Editing and sound design by the very brilliant Brendan Burns. Our sound engineering is by Brendan Burns and my favorite engineer, LeVar Burton. My thanks to Karen Osborne for allowing me to read her story today. If you enjoyed it as much as I did, please check out her novels, Architects of Memory and Engines of Oblivion, both recently published by Tor Books and available wherever books are sold. 
And if you like this podcast, one of the ways you can show it is by sharing an episode with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and include a story suggestion for us. And if you would prefer to listen to episodes ad-free and also have access to some exclusive bonus author interviews, you can do that on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana, she is the boss, and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, LeVar.Burton on Instagram, or my website, LeVarBurton.com. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.